Hey guys, it's Jordan from the band Golden Bloom. Many thanks to Liam for allowing us to hijack the start of his Punks in Pubs podcast. We're about to play our latest single, Great Britain, out on Spotify, iTunes and other streaming services. Give us a follow on our socials if you fancy. It's Golden Bloom, one word, where you can find out about our live shows if we're ever allowed to do those again. Stay safe, thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome 
to the Punks and Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird. I hope you've all been well. It's been a while, uh, September, since I last spoke to you all. Um, I had a nice break away, but we are now back and we're coming back hard because over the next week, we will be releasing three episodes of Punks in Pubs. Each one of these episodes are politically minded. We are going to do a series of political chats uh, because if you didn't know the u.s elections are on november the 3rd if you didn't know that can i come stay with you for a little while because you seem to live in this glorious world our whereabouts no information comes to you and that sounds like fun um so yeah i i want to do a series of political episodes because even though we are a british based podcast what goes on in america has a huge impact globally, sadly. Whoever the Americans vote for, uh, Americans, I mean you who are Americans, listen to this. The rest of you guys just kind of go along for the ride. I wanted to, uh, yeah, do a series of podcasts whereabouts I chat to people from the left and to the right. I wanted to do this because A, is kind of how I got taught how to do political stuff at the BBC you have to kind of do both sides and I wanted to carry that on so what you're going to have is three episodes over this week whereabouts we talk about the US election by no fucking chance was I going to give a Trump support a platform on this podcast but I did want to find someone who was right leaning and we have done that for this episode so my guest for episode 64 is a gentleman called Jimmy Camp So Jimmy is a Republican. Well, actually, he's a former Republican after leaving his party after Trump was elected as leader. I spoke to Jimmy via Zoom on October the 20th. So a little bit of background on Jimmy. Jimmy is a former political operative. He used to work in the inner circles of the California Republican Party, having worked with former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, other senators and president candidates who came through California. Uh, Jimmy is also an OG punk, something that we'll touch on a little bit later. So you're going to hear why Jimmy left the Republican Party and um, how also he was approached by the Trump campaign. You will also find out how the Republican Party have become this cult of Trump. You're also going to find out how Jimmy, a young man who fell in love with the clash, went on to become this pit bull of the California Republican Party. Even though this is a political chat, this still is a punk podcast. So you're going to hear Jimmy speak about how he discovered punk in a cat piss smelled car and how his upbringing in a religious household might have contributed to his rebellious taste in music that led to him actually leaving home and spending two years between streets and squats with punks in Hollywood, California, before being welcomed into the Republican Party just by chance. I'll be back after my chat with Jimmy to let you know about how you can get some discounts on Punks in Pubs t-shirts. Till then, enjoy episode 64 of Punks in Pubs.
but I'm optimistic. So I'm doing well. That's good. We're going to talk about optimism a little bit later on because uh, people who listen to this might not know who you are. So I'm just going to give them a very brief overview. You're a man who has worked on, I don't know, like tens, hundreds of campaigns? Yeah, probably hundreds at least. Yeah. Uh, For the Republican Party mainly. You were a big operative within the Republican Californian area, correct? Yes. Yes. I I was... uh... You know, going back 30 years, I started working in politics about a little over 30 years ago. I was the political director of the California Republican Party. I've worked for presidential campaigns, U.S. Senate, governor's races. I worked for, I spent four years in the Schwarzenegger administration when he was governor. So kind of a broad range of stuff, mostly in California, but I've, I've worked on national uh, stuff as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about politics in a second, because obviously the reason that we're doing this today is because the election's coming up in your country on November the 4th. And as a punk podcast, I truly believe that punk and politics go hand in hand. I'm interested to speak to you because you are so a huge punk fan. So it kind of does blend into uh, to the element of what this podcast is about. So if you don't mind, we'll talk a little bit about punk and then we'll come back to politics. So for you then, from researching you a little bit, I understand your your a son of a pastor so i'm gonna guess punk probably wasn't something that's widely played at home it was not widely played at home at all as a matter of fact i think about those moments you know like okay the first time i heard the sex pistols or the clash or any of these bands and it's kind of like my um you know an old person where were you when jfk was shot or where were you where the twin towers went down and and i always have these moments i sort of i I recall of where, where was I the first time I heard the Sex Pistols? When I was a kid, even, even in the mid-70s, I remember I brought home a Kiss record from one of my friends at school loaned me their Kiss record, and my dad saw it and made me go put it in the trunk of his car. He wouldn't even let it stay in our house that night. That's how, uh, that's how tough it was being, um, you know. I mean, and they weren't, they weren't super, like, crazy uh, you know, I was a pastor's kid, grew up in a Christian family. It wasn't super crazy, but, um, you know, seeing uh, Kiss in their makeup and my dad listened to a couple of songs and he was like, yeah, I'm not having this in my house. So I kind of I grew up a little bit a little bit sheltered like that. But also, you know, when you get to be in your early teens and you're you're out with your friends and, and you're at their houses and things like that, you can pick so were you listening to that, that kind of music then? I'm guessing you heard it on the radio rather than playing at home. Well, I was lucky. I, in, I was a freshman in high school, and I, you know, I mentioned kind of the JFK Twin Towers moment. I was a freshman in high school, and I, um, we were living in the East Bay area at the time of San Francisco. Um, we had just moved to California, um, and I was all stoked. California, you know, I grew up in Southern Virginia, um, and California was like a big deal coming out here. I was a skateboarder um, and that kind of thing. And I didn't, I didn't really fit in at high, you know, typical story. I, I wasn't a jock. I wasn't, I didn't get good grades. Um, and there was this girl that was a senior that kind of befriended me. Um, and one day she said, you know, I got something I want you to hear. I think you're really going to like this. And she had just gone to see the Pistols play. Uh, in San Francisco is their last show hmm. uh, back in 1978. And she pulls out this cassette tape and we go to her car and like, I remember her car smelled like cat piss. And like, so my, <laughs> which is kind of fitting for the Sex Pistols, like to hear it for the first time, I'm sitting in this girl's car 
and she's and she was kind of a, a weirdo anyway, you know. Um, and she put on the Sex Pistols, and I and I remember, you know, the opening, sort of the opening of Holidays in the Sun, that you know that like marching crunch mm. sound. And I heard it, and I was just I was floored. I and we listened to the whole thing, and I thought, okay, this is this this makes sense to me. And I had um, I'd been into music. Um, and, you know, listen to pop radio and that kind of thing. And I like Tom Petty and I like, I like certain things. And I'd heard about punk rock, you know, you'd be at the grocery store and you'd see circus magazine and these pictures of these crazy English punk rockers with, you know, safety pins through their lips and, and their homemade t-shirts and that kind of thing. So I kind of knew what it was, but I never really heard it. Yeah. And that was like my first time I heard the pistols and I thought, wow, this, and then I dove into it like, okay. So and at the time it wasn't something you really heard on the radio. And not long after that, we moved to Southern California and this was right when sort of the California, LA, Orange County punk scene was just starting to sort of blossom. You know, you had bands like the adolescents um, out of Orange County and I, and we all grew up in kind of the same area, social distortion and bands like that. And being a skateboarder, I started meeting other kids that were into punk. And then, like you said, it wasn't something you heard on, on the radio. Although we were lucky in, Cal- in Southern California, we had a radio station called KROQ and a guy named Rodney on the Rock. And he was really one of the first people, one of the first in the country to start playing punk rock on his uh, on his Sunday night radio show. So, you know, you would get hide under your covers and put the radio on and listen to Rodney on the Rock. And you hear bands like, you know, the Runaways and really in the early, uh, early punk stages, you got, you got turned on to music that way as well. But it was mostly through friends, you know. I think Roddy on the Rock, it's interesting you say that because in England, we've got a gentleman or had a gentleman called John Peel, who was yeah. famous for bringing uh, the Clash to Radio 1 and uh, the Buzzcocks and people like that. I think Rodney and the Rocks kind of has the same appeal for punk, giving them airplay when, when no other station really was going to do that at all. And this was, you know, late 70s and then on into the early 80s when kind of the whole new wave thing was starting to happen. And, and it started to become a little more culturally palatable, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. And you started to hear things more on, um, on top 40 or pop radio uh, in the sort of new wave sense. Um, but no, but no, no commercial radio station would play anything near punk rock. So were you not? So it sounds like you're quite influenced by the British punk um, yeah. at the time. Were you not interested by the Ramones or the Toy Dolls or, or Iggy Pop? I was. It's funny you mentioned that. I I also knew a guy at school who was like. I remember one night we were just like wasted on speed and out running around, and he started singing "I'm Bored" by Iggy Pop, and I'm like, "Who is? What is that?" And then I got turned on to the Stooges and Iggy Pop that way. Um, but I, I think the, there, and in the late seventies, you have a lot of bands coming out too, that I, I like the seriousness and, and you mentioned politics and the clash is what really turned me. Um, and I wasn't necessarily political, but I love the message of the clash and other bands, stiff little fingers um, you know, message of struggle and, and fighting the system and that kind of thing. And at the time, a lot of the American bands, I love the Ramones. They're great fun. But, you know, Black Flag, we're going to have a TV party tonight. I was like, yeah, that wasn't really my thing. I was more into a little more seriousness of the of the lyrical content. And don't get me wrong, I lo- you know, I love Black Flag and TSOL and other California bands like that. 
I think X was probably the first real California band where I was like, wow, you know, because they, they, were, they weren't really that sort of, let's be shocking for the sake of being shocking or be cartoonish or punk rock. like this this newfound love and you bring it home how did the family take it because obviously it's it's an angry sound really it's a punk music was seen as an angry sound and i'm guessing as a as a young kid all kids want to rebel against their parents did you see it as a form of rebellion against your parent yeah i think i mean i think i did i i mean consciously i wasn't going oh i'm gonna piss my parents off and put on the buzzcocks and listen to you know Oh shit at full volume to piss my parents off. It wasn't really like that, but I think sort of subliminally in my uh, subconscious that was there. Yeah. But, um, you know, like I said, growing up in that Christian household, the, you know, you shave your head and, and back then, you know, you're walking down the street today and you see a kid with blue hair and a nose ring and it's just, it's normal. Mm-hmm. Back then it was like seeing an alien from another planet in the late seventies. If you saw somebody, you know, and when we were kids, you'd see somebody walking through the mall that looked like a punk and you ran up to each other and you traded tapes and you talked about, oh, what bands do you like? Um, so back then, it, it was really a stigma. Um, you know, you get beat up if you if you uh, had a mohawk or, you know, pierced your ear or whatever. And um, that carried into home as well. I mean, I didn't get beat up at home, but it was like, no, you're not dying your hair. You, you know, you're not going to have a mohawk cut that off um and it really got to a boiling point you know when i was about 17 i ended up sort of self uh exiling myself from the home i didn't really i mean i was 17 so i kind of got kicked out but it was like it was more like look you got to take out the earrings you got to wash the black dye out of your hair you're not going to look like that anymore and it, and 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 rather than you know conform to that i just left home so when when you left home then, did you turn to your punk friends, like the punk community as as yeah. everyone talks about? Yeah. Absolutely. And and it, you know, it sort of carried it was it, you know, the, the sort of squatters in England kind of carried over of course here. You know, you'd have eight or ten or twelve punks living in someone's apartment and crashing on couches and floors. Um, and then you'd move on to someone else's apartment when they got sick of everybody being there. Um, I ended up moving to Hollywood. Uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of crash pads up there. I lived uh, basically on the streets for about a year, year and a half. Um, but with other punks, you know, there's a place called Hotel Hell. It was the old uh, it, it was the Garden Court Apartments on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Sycamore, which now is where you know the, the, there's a big mall there now, and it's uh, where they have the you know the Grammy Awards and the Academy Awards and stuff, the Kodak Theater. 
Um, but then it was an old uh, abandoned apartment building that was built back in the 20s and 30s. Like Laurel and Hardy used to live there. Uh, a lot of actors lived there because they were sort of temporary apartments. But we took it over and, and it became sort of our crash pad, you know, when the cops weren't chasing us out. So when you were listening to, to, to punk then, was it that's when it kind of ignited your political uh, enjoyment or was it later on in life? It was later. I mean, politics sort of happened by accident for me. You know, the, the whole I, I, I was playing in a band, you know, I played guitar. I played drums when I was a kid. Um, and and uh, and growing up, you know, you hear you hear the music. Of, you know, my brother was a big Elton John fan and ELO and bands like that. And a kid can't just pick up a guitar and start playing to Elton John. But you can pick up a guitar and figure out a Ramon song in about five seconds. Um, so part of it was my guitar playing. And, and, and I wasn't a very good guitar player. But, you know, neither was anybody when they started in their bands way back. I mean, Paul Simonon couldn't even play bass when he started playing with the class. You know, um, so um, but the, the politics of it, it was always sort of it was always sort of part of um, the music part of it, but I fell into politics as a profession and sort of as a working thing um, strictly by accident. So I think there's going to be people listening to this who are going to be interested then that you kind of fell into the Republican Party for your how you saw your political beliefs. Because in, in the UK, punk came out of Thatcherism and, and it was like a fight against Thatcherism. And in America at that time was Reagan, who I know that you've spoken about um, as someone who kind of inspired you as well as, as, as a person and in your, into your politics. How did that come about then? Well, it, it, the, the short story is I, I, I was work. I was a musician. I was playing in a band and, um, you know, playing all the clubs and everything. Um, we, we were touring a little bit and uh, I got a job working at a company that did political phone calls. So you would call people up and say, hi, my name's Tim. I'm calling on behalf of Fred Hunter. He's running for mayor of Anaheim. Can we count on your vote? You know, one of those places. And it was a room full of people on phones. And I started working there. And it was a company that catered to Republican candidates. Um, there was a woman that owned the company named Lois Lundberg. And she kind of, she had this sort of, she was like the matriarch of Orange County Republican politics, which if any of your listeners don't know, Orange County was always seen as sort of the Republican county, the Republican place in the United States. It was the most, you know, Richard Nixon was from here. Ronald Reagan came through here regularly. It was it was the most Republican county in the country at the time. And this woman, Lois, had been like chairman of the party. And she was Richard Nixon's campaign chairman for the county and worked for Ronald Reagan and all. You know, she was like the matriarch of Orange County Republican politics. And it was kind of an odd coupling of, because of who I was. Um, but I worked my ass off. I did a really good job. I got promoted. I kind of caught her attention. And she sort of took me under her wing and decided to like make a project out of me. But in the meantime, I was, I was learning about um, different things in politics. Like I said, it was sort of Ronald, it was sort of the end of the Reagan era uh, at that point. And, you know, as a punk kid, I mean, you physically look at Ronald Reagan and, you know, he had the cool black hair, you know, he, he was telling uh, Gorbachev, you know, tear down this wall. He was, there was a sense of toughness and I, and to me, it really kind of went hand in hand a little bit with sort of the message of, you know, if you want power, you have to fight for it. Um, if you want strength, there you have to be able to fight for it. And to me, that sort of Reagan tying into the punk thing uh, at the time made sense to me. 
So do you think then, if if it wasn't at that age when you when you went, and I'm guessing you went because you just wanted a job, you're like looking for a job just yeah. to do. Do you think if you if you landed in a democratic phone booth, do you think maybe your politics could have changed? You know, it's it it, it I don't know that it would have to the extent, but it probably it definitely would have. I was influenced by that as a as a young person and. Um, I didn't like everything that was going on within the Republican Party. And that sort of tied into it because I became the guy that sort of fought, fought the system from within the system a little bit. Um, but I was also known, you know, back then at the time, it was like Republicans, you would think they would have not been like really accepting of me. Like, oh, here's this guy. He rides a motorcycle. He listens to punk rock. He's got tattoos. He didn't go to college. You know, he, he doesn't look like us. But they were actually very accepting of me. I was like their token. Oh, look, we have a cool guy working for us. You know what I mean? It was like, look, Republicans aren't all dicks. Yeah. We have Jimmy. He's, he, look at our cute little punk rocker boy. It was literally like that. Um, so part of it was the acceptance that I got, I think, that, that wouldn't have been expected. He was kind of like, put away Ted Nugent. We don't need him anymore. We've right, got, right, we've got right. Jimmy now. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Pat Boone. Yeah, we have Pat Boone, but no, look, we have Jimmy too. <laughs> so when you were going back then to your, to your punk friends, were you getting shit from them? Because were they Republicans as well? I'm, I'm presuming, I always presume no. majority of punks are in the kind of left-leaning, center-left democratic. Yeah. Well, and in the music scene too, and most yeah. of my friends were, more, were way more liberal. But keep in mind, this, you know, 20, 25 years ago, there wasn't this toxic hatred of the other side that we have now. Yeah, it was it was cooler. Plus, I built this. I ended up building this phone bank into this huge operation and I hired every one of them. It was a great job for a musician. You know, you go to work uh, at four o'clock, you get you're off by nine, you're out the clubs, you can sleep all day. It was a great job for I mean, we had, you know, we had punk kids. You had a girl with pink dreadlocks and tattoos all over her back and a nose ring, lesbian girl making phone calls for conservative Republicans uh, running for Congress. And she was doing it because she was getting paid to do it. But like I said, I, a lot of my friends, like in the club scene and stuff, ended up coming to work with me, working for me. But, you know, we had good, healthy conversations about it. And I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a crazed conservative. I was kind of, you know, I was supportive of, of, of gay rights and marriage equality I was supportive of immigrants and I was trying to change things within my party uh, at the time like that. So we weren't that far off. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of my friends, I was able to also kind of explain the other side in a more clear way than, you know, your average Republican could explain it to a punk. Well, I, again, I think young people are going to be listening to this and the idea that a Republican and a Democrat can actually have a civil conversation is going to be mind blowing. For them, because it, like you said, politics, I think globally becomes so toxic now. I bet you can't have just a general discussion about another person's belief system and try and understand it, but then put your point across where actually not calling him a, a dick or a cunt or whatever. It's just kind of broken yeah, down. It's just it's and, you know, especially uh, since Trump, you know, the, the whole toxic sort of tone of Trumpism, um, it's it's just drawn the lines even worse. And and. and you know, I, I, I hope we can come back from that someday. I think we can. But um, like you said, it's it's just toxic now. But we used to be buddies, you know. I, I mean, my closest friends uh, were liberals um, or writers. Um, you know, my girlfriend was the 
the columnist for the local independent paper, her, her byline was commie girl, you know? <laughs> so, you know, people got along back then. It, it wasn't, you know, we talked, we'd argue about it or, or discuss our feelings, but at the end of the day, you know, we didn't hate each other, like the hatred that exists now. on doors and phone banks and becoming kind of a heavy hitter in your, in the Republican Party. How much did your kind of upbringing with punk kind of play a part in the role in the work that you were doing? Did you see kind of having a punk ethic really kind of cut you away from everyone else who probably yeah, grew absolutely. up within politics? Well, yeah, and I and I wasn't a rich kid and and a lot of the people I worked with, you know, they went to, you know, nice schools and had their, you know, people working for me that had their, you know, their advanced degrees um, and, and were more of the, you know, country club Republican types. But for me, it was that work, you know, I worked my ass off. I, I worked, I had to work twice as hard as other people to sort of prove myself, but there was also that an edge to it too. I mean, I wasn't, I would go dig through somebody's dumpster through all their trash and all and stinky old banana peels and, you know, to find uh, opposition, you know, find dirt on my opponent. I was that guy. And, and I think, you know, that carried over into other areas too. Not, not like, you know, willing to break the law and things like that, but willing to really be on the edge and really to, to fight in a campaign. Hmm. Um, you know, nobody knows how to fight like a punk you know <laughs> that's very true that's very true and um, so you kind of touched on it because in 2016 um the political world changed forever really when trump became the nominee uh for the republican party uh to go on to take on hillary clinton hillary clinton in 2016 a lot of people in the republican party seem to have were against him and then once he was nominated, started rallying behind him, rally behind him, you decided to leave the party. Why why did you decide to leave instead of doing what I'm what you were telling me from before, change it from within? Why did you why did you feel that you couldn't do that? Because I was embarrassed. I, there's no way I could look my son in the eye and go, I'm a Republican. And Donald Trump, I mean, the guy, you know, I don't I don't need to go into Donald Trump's faults. It's it's known what he is. And I couldn't look my friends in the eye and con- and continue to say, OK, I'm a Republican. I just there's no way I could do it. And and, um, you know, it was like, I mean, keep in mind in the primaries in America, um, when there were 17 people on the ballot um, and a lot of them were established people, you know, you had U.S. senators and governors and and uh, and, and well-known names on the ballot during that primary election, Donald Trump when it was contested, never got more than, you know, he averaged 30, 35% of the vote. So more than 60 to 70% of Republicans in most of the primaries didn't want Donald Trump. But like you said, they became, it was sort of like once he became the nominee, it was like they didn't have a choice or they say they didn't have a choice and they just went along with it. 
And I kind of look at it like the, you know, the, the boiling frog parable of the frog in the water and then it slowly starts to boil and now he's dead. That was how it was, I think, for Republicans. They thought, okay, he'll get better. He'll be presidential once he's elected. We'll get past some of this stuff. And he just got worse and worse. And they were already in the pot. And I think, you know, we see a lot of them jumping out now, but um, they just, they sort of just went along with it. It, And it it was, you know, that slow death by a paper, you know, thousand paper cuts kind of thing. Um, But I couldn't, there was no way, you know, they, the Trump campaign offered me a job during the primaries. They wanted me to come work for him, you know, and I told them to fuck off. It's just, there, there was just no way. I, and I have a lot of friends who, who did go do that, you know, and lost a lot of friends over it because not only did I leave the party, but I was loud about it. Hmm. I made a stink about it. You know, I lost probably 80% of my business because of it. I got blackballed, you know, um, all of my business had been, I worked on every single contested, uh, you know, targeted Republican race in California for the last 20 years. And in 2016, when I came out against Trump, I lost her. I, I didn't have one, you know, so I've had to rebuild sort of my business and my business model because of it. But uh, yeah, there, I, I, there was no, you know, there was no way I could I could stay and be a part of that. So at what point did you start seeing the Republican Party changing? Was it when Trump was nominated or could you see could you see it happening beforehand? Could you because it seems to have been that the America America went from Obama, who was seen as kind of a, a liberal leaning um, politician who was generally liked by most. And all of a sudden you've gone from this man who is a politician to all of a sudden this guy who is just trying to create hate and tear down everything that Obama tried to achieve. Right. I mean, I, you can kind of, you know, if you look back and do sort of an autopsy on it, you can kind of see from the early 90s how things really, you know, really started to, to shift sort of an anti-immigrant. You know, if you go back and look at speeches by George Bush or um, Ronald Reagan talking about immigrants and welcoming, you know, what a great asset they are to this country and, and, uh, Latino immigrants, especially, um, and look at it compared to sort of the rhetoric that started changing. It was it was really in the nine, early '90s it started to change. Um, we had something called Proposition 187 in California in uh, 1994, and that and that was basically a ballot initiative that would say that any illegal immigrants they couldn't go to school, kids of illegal you know there was no health care for them. It stripped them away of any any government assistance whatsoever. Um, and that that really sort of started to draw people to the Republican Party that were anti-immigrant. They were angry, pissed off white people that um, were mostly uneducated and they felt like, oh, immigrants are taking my job. They had a shitty life and they, they needed somebody dependent on. And the Republican Party gave them a vehicle to do that. And they pinned it on immigrants. Um, and then there was also sort of this family values and um, anti-gay sentiment that really started, you know, in the nineties started brewing up and it just turned. And then in the, you know, two thousands, we saw this tea party movement going on, which, which is almost laughable now because the tea party movement was kind of based on government spending and the national deficit. And, you know, we have the greatest national debt under Donald Trump that we've ever had obviously in our history and in, in his budget deficits, all these guys that are in Congress now ran again, ran on that in, in the 2000, in the nineties and two thousands. 
um, it's these sort of budget hawks. Um, and, and here they are, you know, licking Trump's balls uh, as he puts us in the worst national debt we will ever, I don't know that we'll ever get out of. But it was, it was this slow thing that was happening within the party. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it had its ups and downs as kind of a, a movement thing. And then when Trump came along, it just it, it was like he was like gasoline on that fire. Hmm. Um, and, and they've literally taken over the Republican Party now. So in California, then, because it's interesting, I, I, I agree. I think when the Tea Party came about and, and you had politicians like uh, Sarah Palin, Herman Cain, Michelle Buckman, who, who were saying they, they came about as physical conservatives. But then all of a sudden their rhetoric changed to a lot more of anti-immigration, anti like if you don't agree with the troops, you are a terrorist, that kind of language. And then you have a person like Mitch McConnell who openly states that I will succeed if I if I make Barack Obama a one-term president by not allowing anything to come through the Senate. Were were you as a campaign manager in in California, were you taking that as well? Was that was that your viewpoint of destroy the Democrats at any cost or would would you cuz you seem quite passionate about immigration and immigration is obviously a huge deal in California. Like was that something where actually go no I'm not I'm not towing that line. That that's bullshit. I'm not going to spout that immigrants are going to be the people who are MS13 or whatever they was at the time. Yeah, no, I didn't I didn't follow that line as a matter of fact it was my my falling out with the party really happened sort of during the Obama era a little bit. I um you know, I was still working for Republican candidates and I was helping get Republicans elected. But I liked Barack Obama. I thought our country needed him, even though I disagreed with him on probably 80 percent of policy things. I felt like our country needs Barack Obama to be president. Disagreed with him on many, many issues. But and I didn't come out. It wasn't like now where I'd come out totally against Trump. But I, I love the idea. As a matter of fact, I was in Virginia during the primaries and I actually volunteered to, to on Barack Obama's campaign while I was back in Virginia um, when he was running against Hillary Clinton. Um, but I kind of put policy aside and, and, you know, there was a point in my life where I thought, OK, what's more important, like that I pay, you know, twenty seven dollars less in taxes every year or that this other person can have a, a live a quality life. You know what I mean? I started really re-examining sort of some of the policy issues as well. I mean, I, I, I didn't become like a flaming progressive by any means, but I started looking at, okay, what's the trade-off here? Um, and, and that became amplified with Donald Trump, obviously. You're probably going to be best to answer this than probably a lot of people um, in politics because if you grew up in a religious background. How has Trump managed to manipulate the 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 religious right that he is this god loving man when quite clearly for him the ten commandments is, is a challenge really yeah you know you've got a so you got a guy that because and it was because of the republican party and the lock that the republican party had on evangelical christians and it's kind of like that slow boiling frog thing but keep in mind a lot of the leadership within christianity and and, and some of the bigger they're money driven these are money driven people um, my dad's still a pastor. My dad, 95% of his time, he spends helping homeless people. That's not the case with the leadership of some of these mega churches. And, you know, 90% of their time is spent on private jets and flying around hobnobbing, you know, with other rich people. 
So there was a money thing involved with it, but then also the, the lock that the Republican had on evangelical Christians, you know, oh, we gays are bad, abortion is wrong. Um, and, and the alternative to that was Hillary Clinton. And they sort of, they sort of got caught up and, and, you know, Donald Trump is like a carnival huckster, you know, and he drew them in and, and, and the, the hypocrisy is astounding. You know, you got a guy who's banging porn stars and says he's never done anything wrong that he needs to ask God for forgiveness for it. I mean, any person that grew up in sort of Christianity in the church and that knows the basic principles of Christianity knows that Donald Trump, you can, you can make a poster, like here's the exact opposite of a Christian, you know, of what Jesus actually taught. But people, like I said, there was a money issue. There was a hierarchy within the, um, with in Christian leadership that went along with it. And, uh, and it's sad because I, I think not only, I mean, there, there's going to be a stain on the Republican Party for years. And I think there's also going to be a stain on establishment Christianity as well, we think. Like your dog, you get tight. It's the new MRI right. They were like crimes, the home of the bird, for the master race of the USA. Look to the election then. Do you believe that there is a certain thing as an undecided voter in this election? It's funny because I talk about that a lot. There's what I don't believe there is. I believe there's motivated voters and unmotivated voters. So there's I don't think that there's very few people out there right now going, there's some, but there's very few that are thinking, okay, should I vote for Trump or should I vote for Joe Biden? There are very few. A lot of them are independents and moderate, well-educated Republicans who voted for Trump last cycle. And now they're going, "Okay, has he finally pushed the envelope too far for me? Now, a lot of those people won't vote. They'll end up, I can't stomach voting for a Democrat or voting for a progressive or a liberal or a, a, a communist, whatever they want to call Joe Biden and try to label him as, which he's not. Um, but they'll end up not voting. So I think the battle in this election is, is going to be turnout. Do the motivated voters vote and do the unmotivated not vote? And I think an unmotivated voter is most likely uh, a Trump sort of fringe voter, like may or may not vote for Trump, and then they end up not voting. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing uh, the sort of voter intensity right now all over the country where we, we, we can see Who's returned absentee ballots? We have a record number of mail-in ballots uh, historically that have never happened before. More people are voting than ever in the United States. And we're able to look at that. And in a lot of states, we're able to look at and see how many Republicans returned their ballots, how many Democrats have returned their ballots. Now, Donald Trump has spent the last year or six months talking about how corrupt the process is and that 
um, absentee mail-in votes are um, are are uh, fraudulent and don't don't fall for it. So Republicans are buying that and they're not voting by mail. In the meantime, Democrats are banking votes as we speak. Um, and I've looked at I've looked at data in a lot of different districts in different states, and in California, in our three most contested congressional races, Democrats have voted. 30% to 40% higher than Republicans are returning ballots right now. That gives me some optimism. Now, the, que- the question is, do all these Trump voters and Republicans end up going and voting on Election Day? Hmm. Um, that's yet to be seen. But I can tell you from a strategic standpoint, as a Republican operative that I spent 30 years, you want to put as many votes in the bank as possible before Election Day. And and uh, right now, I'm seeing the intensity swing on the Democrat side. So something obviously that Trump's trying to spout out is that people who do do voting balloting, there's 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 fraudulent things going on there. As someone who has spent those years, those many years at voting uh, booths and, and counting votes as well, how how are, how how what a percentage have you seen um, of fraudulent activity during elections? Well, I can tell you this, I. I also had a reputation as being the guy that they would call at midnight on election night in a race that was too close to call. I've spent more time in the back rooms of uh, county registrar voting offices probably than anybody in this country. Um, Every election cycle, I'm there overseeing and making sure that the absentee ballots that come in are being uh, monitored and, and counted correctly. I have never, ever, ever, and I'm talking millions of ballots I've overseen, I've, I've gone to other states to do this after an election. Not once have I ever seen any fraudulent activity that came even close to, to making any difference in election. There would be some, you may find one or two ballots here and there, somebody that voted twice. Um, the question is, was it fraudulent? Maybe, maybe they, you know, they got an absentee ballot in the mail, but then they also went to the polls. Those votes just get thrown out. There's a, there's a mechanism in place to catch all these things. All this fraudulent, they're going to cheat. There are mechanisms in place in every single county, in every single state to see that that doesn't happen. I've never, ever seen it happen. It's a, it's a complete, absolute myth. And it's a voter suppression myth. And it's Donald Trump. You know, he's like that spoiled little kid that turns the, the game over when he's losing at checkers. Because if he thinks he, he wants an excuse if he loses, well, they cheated. And he, he did it. He did it four years ago with Hillary. You know, oh, they're going to cheat. And this is going to be a fraud. He did it then. It's been more so now. Um, but, you know, he's setting the table to, to sow discontent and, and um, trust in the, our, our very uh, political process. And it's a dangerous thing. So for you, then, what does Trump putting your 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 job hat on? What do you think Trump needs to do? To, to, tr- to try and bring the polls a little bit closer uh, to what they are now? Well, I can, I can say what he needs to do, but, it, but he's not capable of doing it. He's not capable of being a fucking human being. He's not. Um, every day, what I, as someone who wants Trump to lose, I want him to be on the road every single day in front of thousands of people saying stupid things because it's, he's not helping himself right now. I, it's, it's brilliant what he's doing. I hope he continues to do it and spend every day on the campaign trail um, talking to these big, huge COVID infested fans, because that's what he's doing at the super spreader events. Um, 
but he's not capable of being a human being and being a compassionate, you know, he can't go back and erase the fact that he said, oh, you know, this COVID's not a big thing. We're going to have 15 cases. It'll be gone. Well, you know what? There's 220,000 dead Americans. There's millions of people dead all over the world. This is not something that's just going to go away. And not once is Donald Trump, have I ever seen him speak in a compassionate and a sorrowful way for that? Like, man, I really, I really feel bad. And he said things like it, but you can, you can look at him and it's not, it's, there's no compassion. There's no empathy there whatsoever. And, you know, and unless he, he can suddenly miraculously grow, I don't, I don't think there's any um, change for him. He, he's not going to all of a sudden change his stripes. Um, you know, there are little things they could be doing strategically. And I know that his advisors are telling him this, but he's too freaking stupid. And he's too much of an egomaniac to believe that somebody else might know better than him. And I should listen to these advisors not to get up there and attack Dr. Anthony Fauci, who three, two thirds of Americans trust when one third of Americans trust Donald Trump. You know, he's out there today calling, you know, calling Anthony Fauci names. I hope he continues to do it. I, I, for me, what's been interesting is seeing Republican members like yourself and also the Lincoln Party, who've really grown this online social uh, online um, political ads, which is something that the Democrats would never do the way that they really targeted and be a bit more vicious. Why do you think the Democrats have never been able to get down and dirty like the Republican Party? Well, because honestly, they're nicer people than most Republicans. I mean, <laughs> they, they really are. <laughs> Democrats are pretty not cool people. You know, when it comes to, oh, I don't want to be a dick. Republicans have a natural tendency, like, yeah, to punch somebody in the mouth. You know what I mean? Um, right or wrong. I mean, there, you know, there's times where you need to punch somebody in the mouth. I mean, I'm not, that's not a direct quote of Joe Strummer, but it's pretty close. <laughs> like sometimes you have to take action and Republicans are, are, are willing to do that. You mentioned the Lincoln project, which I'm on the advisory board for California. I, I these are all friends of mine I've worked with for years on, on campaigns and they've done a brilliant job of sort of, Telling Republicans, one, it's okay. It's okay to be against Trump. Um, I honestly believe if 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 Trump if Trump loses this election, a big part of it is going to be because of the Republicans that had integrity. Now, a lot of them are people that helped create this mess, and they admit that. But they've done an about face and they said, We're gonna put policy aside and we're gonna we're gonna do what's best for this country to have a functioning adult government, even if we d- disagree with you know, them raising our taxes or, uh, you know, whatever the issue is or the judges they appoint to the Supreme Court. And these guys gave up their political careers uh, to, to do that and, and go after Trump. And, and a lot of respect for them for doing that. I think something that a lot of people are interested in as well is let's say Biden does win. Do you think the Democratic Party will go after Trump to bring him in front of a court? Or do you think Biden will be let, let bygones be bygones? Well, I don't I don't think I don't think the Democrats have to do anything. There, there's there's le- legal things that Donald Trump has done that has nothing to do with Congress or Democrats or Republicans. It has to do with, um, you know, his business dealings in New York or it, there are many things that he's done that I believe are criminal. It hasn't been proven, but I think they are, you know, whether it's, you know, he and his, um, you know, stupid children ripping off uh, their charity. Uh, you know, to benefit themselves. They can't even operate a charity in the state of New York now, any of his kids. Um, but there are, there are plenty of things, I think, that are, whether it's his taxes, 
um, things that will come to light that have no, that will. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, what's what's happening. Once he's not president, he, they can pursue him on all, all these charges. So for the thousands of people who are listening to this, I'm going to guess most of them are left leaning, but their parents might be more kind of Trump supporting uh, going to the polls. What advice would you give to those people listening to this? What 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 like kind of talking points would you say go to your parents talk to them about this and try and convince them that trump is not their guy well and 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 it depends on what their perspective is but in a general sense and i say this to people all the time look it's a secret ballot for one thing um and i understand you may have voted for trump in the past and it's hard to admit like but we were wrong look we were wrong here and for the sake of our country we need we need a grown-up government no matter what goes on policy-wise, we need a functioning government. And Donald Trump has put children in charge of our government to the point where we're the laughing stock of the world. There's national security issues that are going on. Um, there's things that could be really detrimental to this country that without an adult in charge, it's not going to change. And it, it, could, it could bring down our country. And I think being able to tell someone, look, it's okay to admit, and it doesn't mean you love Joe Biden. It doesn't mean you support uh, raising taxes or whatever the issue is, but it means you support bringing our country back to a civil state, to a place where people can 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 agree to disagree again. So who do you think will win? You know, I was just looking uh, four years ago today. There was, you know, I see these graphics from The New York Times or a lot of the um, major news outlets. They were talking about Hillary Clinton uh, It's 90 percent, you know, through all their modeling and. And, uh, you know, 90 percent chance that Hillary would win the election. That was two weeks out um, four years ago. I don't take anything for granted. We need to fight like we're getting our asses kicked. And and we are. But people can't become complacent. There's a very real chance that Trump could win this election. There's a very real chance. And people have to vote. The, 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 The way that you can stop that from happening is by voting. We can't sit back and go, ah, Biden, you know, Trump's losing in all these polls. I'd rather be us than them right now, but, you know, I don't trust the pollsters after 2016. I think there's, I think there's Trump voters out there that don't, that are embarrassed and aren't willing to tell a pollster that they're going to vote for Trump. So I think it's going to be closer than people think. Well, let's end it with kind of more, more of a, a punk theme then. What, what track <laughs> would you recommend for people to listen to when they're about to ballot, put in their vote if they're going in person to listen uh, to to vote what what one song would you go put this I in your ears de- death or glory you know every cheap hood strikes a bargain with the world and ends up making payments on a sofa or a girl i believe in this and it's tested by research he who fucks nuns will later join the church it's a great song and it's a great song you know hands that slap his kids around because they don't understand death or glory all in. jimmy mate thank you so much for talking to me i hope other people listening to this will get educated and understand it and they can um they can follow you on twitter is it uh what is your twitter handle at jimmy camp one on twitter you can follow me or get, look at the punks and pubs podcast i follow you so they can look on if they can't remember my twitter handle go look at your followers and you'll see i'm there i'm a fan of the show oh well you're too kind jimmy you're too kind well all the best i hope everything turns out rosy and that there is a biden presidency and uh trump is uh gets what's coming to him but you never know i mean as as a brit i'm used to being dour 
It's <laughs> fucked up here as much as it's fucked up in America. So um, and maybe maybe we'll do a follow up afterwards. We'll do a post mortem. Definitely, definitely do that. But thank you so much for talking to me, Jimmy. And uh, yeah, let's talk again soon. No, it, it's awesome. I had a great time. so much to jimmy for taking the time to talk to me next up on wednesday i'll be jumping across the political divide when i'll be speaking to mel gagarin a socialist democrat so make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a thing um, I'm going to be pushing the Vote Save America voting platform website uh, that helps and supports people to plan how they're going to go ahead and vote. We're going to be pushing that on social media. There's a link to that in the episode description of this podcast. If you've already gone and voted, congratulations. Good for you. Now go get five other mates you know who probably are on the fence about going to vote. As we are back doing an election special, I wanted to do something special for you. So everyone listening to this podcast can go pick up a Punks in Pubs t-shirt from our Etsy site for just £10. Just use the promo code IWILLVOTE. Uh, The discount should come up when you go to the checkout section of Etsy. Shirts usually cost £16, so go and get yourself something sexy and black before i go thank you to golden bloom for sponsoring this week's episode make sure you go check out these guys and go and show them a little love if you would like to sponsor the podcast for free just like golden bloom email punksinpubs at gmail.com thank you for listening go rate and review on apple podcast takes literally a minute of your time but it helps massively Follow us at Punks and Pubs across social platforms and fucking vote. Till next time, bye bye.